Can America overcome division and create unity? We'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog to make the show? Start the clock. And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Apple. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. We're going to talk about trying to heal uh, the wounds of division in at least the United States, maybe the world, uh, kind of an optimistic and uh, high goal to set. Uh, I'm kind of, <laughs> you know me, I'm a bit of a pessimist about the whole situation, but we're going to talk to a guy who seems to know a lot about um, unity and, and forming unity, creating unity. Uh, before I bring him in, I need to speak briefly about our sponsors tonight's show is brought to you by audiobooksnow.com audiobooks now is an audiobook service you know all about audiobooks they're very convenient you can listen to a book while you're on a long drive on your daily commute to work even while doing uh, menial chores and things like that so why audiobooksnow.com when you can get audiobooks just about anywhere on the on the web right now well the issue is price point price point price point audiobooks now club uh, pricing plan is simply the best deal on audiobooks you will find. It offers the savings and flexibility not found anywhere else with their save on everything discounts, rollovers, exclusive deals, uh, loyalty program, incredible selection, and cancel anytime policy. It simply cannot be beat. Plus, get a free premium audiobook on select titles when you click the link in the description right now, and it gets even better. You can start a 30-day free trial of your uh, club pricing plan right now. It's usually $4.99 a month. You can start it absolutely free when you click the link that's in the description, audiobooksnow.com. Great deal there, folks, and I urge you to take take them up on it. Um, and I do appreciate you patronizing the sponsors again. The links are all in the description. On to the big program. Uh, what a better time! What a better time to try to uh, create some unity in uh, America, in the world. Uh, we are a very divided, uh, angry um, race. I mean, the human race. Uh, and so, hopefully, we'll, we'll get some answers and some some light and some encouragement and some insight on how to. <laughs> Again, I'm I'm a pessimist on this stuff, but let's keep our fingers crossed and hope we learn something here tonight. Uh, Brandon Peel is the founder of Unity Lab, a movement to create more empathy, trust, and solidarity in these times of unprecedented division and polarization. And he's also a best-selling author, impact entrepreneur, and an expert in purpose, leadership, and culture change. <laughs> Prior to uh, founding Unity Lab, he worked at two leading social learning companies, ION and Imperative, to activate empathy, trust, uh, belonging, purpose, and leadership at scale. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Brandon Peel to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Brandon, welcome. Thank you for having me here, Matt. It's great to have you here. I hope we, we can get something uh, positive uh, done and and maybe shine some light on stuff but as you heard me say there i'm a i'm a real pessimist when it comes to this stuff i think we are we are so divided and i know we were originally supposed to have you on on election day and i yeah. thought that was a good time and for some reason that didn't work out and here we are we have uh inauguration day two days ahead of us 
and it's it's not looking any better. I mean, it's looking worse. And I'm really nervous for where the country is right now. So where do we even get started with trying to kind of bridge the gap and come together as one nation under God and all that kind of stuff? Well, uh, I'm first going to quote the immortal Rob Schneider of comedy fame. <laughs> and uh, he basically says, if you go out and talk to your neighbor, you're going to find that we're a lot less divided than the media would make us out to be. And now, you know, Rob Schneider is obviously not a sociologist, anthropologist, political scientist or anything, but it's true. I mean, when, so I've got tons of Republican, tons of Democrat, anarchist, socialists, you know, centrist, people who are disaffected by politics, tons of friends. And when it comes down to, it, we all want the same thing. Like when I have a beer with people, they want the same thing. They want to have a job that's fulfilling, that pays a steady wage. Uh, they want to have enough to provide for, you know, a house rent. Uh, they want to be able to enjoy their family and nature and their hobbies. I mean, how we get to that, that's, that's essentially a matter of ideology and, and how, but we literally all want the same things. And so when we look at these divisions, I mean, they're large, they're, they're large, but they actually appear twice as large. Um, and there's some really interesting research out of uh, uh, the Pew Research Institute. Um, they said something like 28% of uh, Americans are radical, like extreme, like want like death to the other side. <laughs> but the, okay. perception, the perception is actually worse. People believe that 55% of Americans uh, like literally want to, you know, want to kill the other side. So the like, media plays a big role in this. So we do have a problem, but it's half as big as most people think it is. Hmm. Uh, maybe. Okay. I, I will, I will, <laughs> I, I will, I, I sort of agree with you, what you said. I would say active radicals, the, the idea of where I'm willing to take action on it. And I think it might be even less than that 20, whatever, 22% that you said, people who are actually active and, you know, those people who are actually going to go out and commit violence or uh, go to a, a protest and get out of hand. I think that number is probably pretty small. I would, I would be shocked if it were 10% to be honest with you. But yeah. I think uh, the, the amount of people that believe and I, I hear what you're saying about lies, but uh, I grew up in a time where, you know, black and white, uh, you know, right and wrong was there was no gray area necessarily in a lot of what we talk about as right and wrong. We're in a time now where we can't agree that Nazism was wrong. Uh, uh, and so that it just shocks me that people are that dug into it. So. Well, I agree that, you know, the number of people who are actually going to go out there and, and do stupid things and violence and all that kind of stuff is probably pretty small. The people who justify it, I think, are closer to 50 percent. Uh, well, so there's a, a study that came out this this summer that's it's slightly different. So basically, uh, I think these are folks at the University of Florida and some other place on I can get you the stat, but they basically said that uh, they, they asked people, would you justify violence? And it turns out that 18% of liberals would justify violence if their candidate did not win in November. 13% of conservatives would justify it. So it's, you know, 
at least a few months back, it was like 30, uh, yeah, 31% give or take. Um, now, it's it's because what you brought up is a really great point about how things used to be. You know, so I grew up in the Midwest in the 1980s, and I was probably like growing up on the East Coast in the 1950s. Like it was very there's a consensual reality. It was the Catholic Church, the Chicago Bears, and capitalism. You know, that was kind of everyone believed in that. Very right. few folks did not. Um, but what we have now is a different world. Um, there's a couple of key points in our in our recent history. Now we're, we're also part of a larger kind of 100, 120 year trend that I, I can talk about more in a, in a bit, but the, the recent history is basically one of pretty much, um, you know, middle-class prosperity, uh, folks getting along, you know, bias, or I should say racism was pushed underneath the surface in 1965. I'm still there, still racism. Obviously, we're still seeing it. Um, but people pretty much kind of towed the line, you know, slightly left of center, slightly right of center. But it was like we still, you know, coached each other's kids in Little League, uh, Cub Scouts, all that kind of stuff. But something something happened in the 80s that kind of frayed the, fa the fabric. Uh, two key things. One was that the FCC fairness doctrine was not uh, reinstated. So basically what that meant is that anybody on television could say anything. Basically, you did not have to be fair and balanced. You could just say whatever you wanted. And so you have hyper-partisan um, uh, cable news networks. Now, shortly thereafter, I guess this is the 90s, uh, when Newt Gingrich got into Congress, he did something fairly radical at the time. Uh, he basically told his party not to move to Washington, D.C., to stay home, fly in on Monday night and leave on, on on Friday morning. And so a bunch of them took took them up on that. Now, on the surface, that, that's nothing, right? That's a logistics travel decision. But what that, what that ended up doing at the national level was that now these families, these D.C. families weren't coaching each other's kids on Little League team. They weren't seeing each other at the galas. The Republicans were staying home and the Democrats took over DC. So there, there was this geographic animosity that accelerated it. And then of course, you know, we've seen what happened with the internet. Awesome yeah. shows like yours. And then there are a bunch of shows that are completely baseless. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, there are a lot of people uh, who lose uh, all kind of um, perspective on what what the freedom of speech is about and especially now with with the lockdown and the advent of a thousand um, a million new podcasts coming on board there are a lot of people who just want to uh kind of broadcast their opinions which are not necessarily based on uh any kind of real homework or any stuff or any of that knowledge you know doing the, the homework for, for to justify that opinion and it's not always their opinion it's regurgitating somebody else's opinion who's been spoon-fed to them right but but i, I just want to share um uh, just in a little anecdote about since after election day i was on, on social media and i I, I said I had some real concerns about uh, Donald Trump trying to uh, 
incite violence among his followers. Now, I am obviously, I mean, it should be pretty clear by now, not a Trump guy. But I live in a county that is very, it's a very strong uh stronghold for for trump and most of the people i grew up with and people that i am still friends with people my age are heavy duty trump supporters so what i asked was uh, if donald trump asked you to pick up a gun and come for me you know would you and i all i wanted was a yes or no i'm not going to try to talk you out of your political uh stance or anything you know it's not about parties you can believe in policy all you want if he asked you to pick up a gun gun and come at, at me will you and I got 11 no's out of 897 friends on Facebook, uh, 5,000 or so on Twitter, uh, 60,000 or more on Instagram, um, 11 no's, definite no's. And my best friend said, I can't. I just can't. I, meaning he can't say no to me because that would be turning, that would be against the cult. If I, if I turn against Trump publicly, Mm -hmm. I, I'm <laughs> I'm putting myself in danger of becoming the enemy. Oh, yeah. uh, so that is kind of a hard place to even try to create empathy when you can't promise me that even our differences are not going to come to the point where you're going to want to take my life. And I said, mm -hmm. I, I don't care what <laughs> I don't care who asked me to pick up a gun to kill you. I'm not doing it. Whether I would never do it for any politician. I wouldn't do it if my wife asked me to go kill you. Um, and and just to say that, to give you a, com a commitment that I won't, should be pretty easy. And my friends could not make that commitment. So yeah. <laughs> this is why I'm a pessimist. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, you're you're pointing to something that's, um, yeah. I mean, obviously now there's life and death consequences. I mean, my my house, for example, has been targeted by. Uh, militia and all that like this it's we're not yet at civil war but this is what it looks like right before I mean, right you gotta really need to watch hotel rwanda to see kind of what was happening in terms of the verbal intimidation the the media outlet radicalization the stockpiling of the weapons the militias starting to march then all of a sudden someone gave the command out came the machetes and a bunch of people got slaughtered right. so i mean there are many lessons in history. Um, now, why does it? Why does this happen? Um, so, as much as we would like to think of ourselves as, and I don't just mean me and you. I mean like every human being, as like free thinking, grounded in our own morality, uh, able to judge what is true versus false. Um, that's really not how the human mind, identity, uh, personality structure works. It's, you know, we're not this tabula rasa that just like takes in data, makes the best choice, takes in more data, makes another choice. It's essentially, and I'm kind of paraphrasing some work from Jonathan Haidt, who wrote this book called uh, The Righteous Mind. Um, the subtitle is Why Good People Disagree About Politics and Religion. And he wrote this book eight years ago. Of course, if you, the subtitle today would be like, Why Good People Want to Kill Each Other. <laughs> for politics right. Right? <laughs> but, but basically what, what what he says is that you know it makes a lot of great points in that that book but um and it's not making it up this is all research based he's a moral psychologist and site studies and uh he says that we're primarily groupish versus selfish so yeah we do make some selfish deci decisions like you know 
where to spend our money. Do we like this brand of scotch versus that brand of scotch, whatever it is. But for the most part, our morality, our decision-making, our identity is based on group cohesion and consistency. So your buddies who are like, I can't leave Trump nation. Basically all they're telling you is that if you were in it, if you were in the nation, you'd be good. If you're not, you're not. And it's, um, to break that down, that is the, that is our, our national task right now. We have, it used to be easy, you know, when it was just slightly right, slightly left, we could create unity after an election. Now we have to do a much more sustained and yet intense surgical um, maneuver, set of maneuvers to bring people back into community, into humanity with those who they disagree with. And that is what I'm committed to and many other people are. Well, I applaud your your commitment to that, and I I, I would love to see that. Don't don't get me wrong. It's just I, I've been working that. You know, I feel like I made a huge mistake in, in my life. Uh, for forty years, I've been preaching uh, against the two party system, saying the two party system is the worst thing in America. I encourage people to to kind of be independent and judge everything uh, on individual issues so whether it's gun control don't say i'm for the republican solution or the democrat solution think for your own mind and say what is a a real uh, and compromise is important the idea of compromise but what do i have what do i really feel about this issue uh, and what what are my core values and principles that are guiding my beliefs about this issue whether it's gun control abortion you name it, uh, you know, social justice, whatever, it, whatever the issue has to be. But you, you kind of look at it through the uh, prism of your own values and principles and say, what are and who who is closer to where I feel about this on any issue and take it one issue at a time. But now I've seen that, you know, a lot of that two party system, I, there is something worse than a two party system. And that's a one party system. <laughs> we look at history, you know, the worst, worst countries in the world to live in ever have been one where authoritarianism and one party rules the, the country. Right. So I feel like I probably let the world down by, by all my, my people who listen to me by saying the two party system is evil because we're, we're moving very strongly towards the desire for a one party system. And I, that was not the, we need more parties not less <laughs> exactly exactly yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that i think i think most political scientists are as well they're like you know in a with a different set of circumstances two parties are fine but we are pluribus we are 300 and you know 30 50 million people i don't even know how many people we are now but we have tons and just you know Right here, the local school, 64 languages spoken there. So to assert that one party could speak on behalf of (laughs) all 64 of those languages or all uh, or 32 of them is ridiculous. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And that's, um, you know, there are, there are other countries who have more coalition government where you have multiple parties that, you know, assess the situation and say, okay, we're going to agree to partner for this term. And then they break up after that term. And because, you know, like the green will partner with the libertarian for this period. And then the conservative will partner with the libertarian. And then the greens will partner with the socialists. And and, and so you end up having uh, essentially a, 
there's there's more grease in the joints. People are always talking about what they believe in and 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 how we can uh, ally. So it's not like a right wrong left right thing. It's just what's best for the country. And so there's lots of ways that we can come back to unity. And um, I've got my idea about what needs to happen happen next. But I'm curious, you know, what do you think? Like if, if you could take your the skeptical part of your brain out and say, okay. I believe I believe unity is possible. What's like the first thing you would do? First thing I would do is, and it's not an easy thing, but I think, and I am definitely guilty of this. I think we all need to uh, curb our language and and become more mature. Uh, stop with the name calling and really think before we speak. Uh, even when, especially when offering an opinion, but uh, to just to say somebody. It's a knee-jerk reaction. It, it starts, uh, you know, the, the the ugliness with the name-calling and all this stuff and belittling somebody because they said something that is just totally against what you believe. And it, the the uh, instinct for those of us who are not that mature, myself included, is to kind of point out why that's ridiculous and not even worth considering and, and kind of it, it escalates to name-calling pretty quick. Like, it won't be long before I say you're you're an idiot. And then, and once, once I've done that, we've yeah. the dialogue stops. Yeah, the defenses right. go up, and it's like, you're this, you're that. And, right. So, so how how do we? Because I think that would be the first step is 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 getting some maturity around our language and our dialogue, and which takes thoughtfulness and slowing down and not reacting. But that's not something that uh, we're inclined to do. That takes discipline. It takes practice. It takes uh, it takes sometimes it takes somebody being there to say, "Hey, slow down! Don't don't hit that send button. Stop." <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife and I do that for each other all the time. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, listen to this email. I'm like, that's beautiful. Don't send it. Right. <laughs> like, let's, let's massage this part. Let's get rid of that. And then, yeah. And it, it, it does take practice. And, and you know, I, I by the way, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Like, that is a probably the most important part of the solution right there. It's just comporting oneself as a sovereign. As, as somebody who is like blesses and honors the dignity of the other person and creates relationship with them first before you even get to the place of policy or, or idea and treats them with respect, like acknowledges all the good things they shared, like listens for what's underneath that, like their care, their concern, their values, their commitment, like who they are for their family, their community, all that just like basic sovereign leadership. When that comes into a situation, then people are like, yeah, you know what? Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for seeing why I care about what I care about. And then like, then you ask them, well, we both want the same thing. You know, we both want a peaceful communities or a thriving economy or you know, a sustainable um, relationship to the planet. If you encountered a, another way to do it that was you know, had a higher ROI or that uh, took fewer resources or that had a faster return, would, would you be open to exploring it? So all this, so, so that question right there, almost nobody even gets that question because you first have to build the relatedness. Like, yeah, Matt's a good guy or, you know, we throw the football around. We both like the Steelers or whatever. And then, then you get to the place of like, yeah, Matt sees something in me that is unique 
And then it's like, okay, now we can talk about ideas. But most people just go straight to, you're an idiot. <laughs> Here's why that will never work. Yeah. Well, it, it seems to me like even in the workplace, and I'm just using this as an example, though, when people have an idea about how a company might do something better, I think they really need to feel heard and appreciated that their idea is being considered even if it's not followed, it needs to be considered and heard. And I think uh, when it's not heard, that's when we see people unhappy and become um, enemies of, of the company, <laughs> enemies of the state. So and I, I think that's the biggest part of the problem is, you know, people can have bad ideas and and not necessarily, uh, not necessarily become your enemy. It's when they want to express that idea and you don't even take the time to consider it that makes them feel like now you become you're, you're their enemy because you're just dismissing them as a person and they, they feel unheard unvalued and all that kind of stuff it, it's it you know so that whole thing from from being in a company kind of just plays out into the bigger scene of being in a society totally. i think that's the same thing is you know people want to know that their ideas are at least heard but again i come back to this idea that this concept of people don't have their own ideas and i i say this all the time to people just because you agree with something you heard on fox news cnn and msnbc whatever it was social media you copying and pasting it as if it's your own idea is not your own idea. Even if you feel like you totally agree with it, it's necessary to stop and put it through the filter of your own mind and come out with your own words to articulate it so that you know for sure it matches your values and principles. And it's truly your your opinion and not sharing somebody else's opinion and i think that's what we have is a lot of people just sharing somebody else's opinion calling it their own and then they get defensive about that opinion which wasn't their own to begin with <laughs> well it's it's absolutely true um now i will say that people do have great ideas about things that they spend time with and observe uh but when it comes to politics or you know just any kind of collective conversation uh, those are a little harder to come by because we do have a couple hundred years of political philosophy and people have thought about a bunch of alternative ways to do it and even, you know, had some success at, at trying them. Um, but, but you're, you're right because when folks are only hearing one thing over and over again, it sounds like the truth. And there's actually scientific evidence that says when you hear that black is white, like over and over and over again, you're like black is white even though your own eyes are saying white is white and black is black, people literally, they, they conflate that because it, it, it seeps in. Now, television is a, uh, well, I should say all kind of film video mediums, like anything you get on your phone, your PC, your, your TV, is uniquely uh, powerful at moving right past the neocortex and into the identity center. So there's, um, there's a book that came out in the late 70s called Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. And what they what they found is that like, TV has got like 30-some-odd frames per second, and like the brain can, pro can process at most like 12 to 15 of them. So that means like over half of the data coming through you or, or coming through, in, through your eyes and ears is moving right past the neocortex 
and settling in your unconscious desires, beliefs, and behaviors and, and opinions. And so you're like, yeah, I had that idea because it just literally, it was coming in too fast for you to slow it down to, to judge if it was right or wrong. Right. So this kind of comes back to this FCC doctrine, like the airwaves belong to us. The internet belongs to us. And it, it, they're currently being used in ways that exploit us and turn us into, you know, meme repeating mach machines, ideologues, without really having a chance to evaluate the ideology behind it. So there's a, a role that the, that the government plays too in regulating what actually gets put out over these, these airwaves. And of course, there's big risk too, because we don't want to have 1984, you know, group think type stuff happening. But we also can't take something this dangerous and be like, hey, anybody go use it because you can, <laughs> like, half of your shots are going to go in no matter how good they are. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, it strikes me, though, that because um, I, I know doing a little bit of research about you and what you do. And again, I applaud what you're doing and I applaud the um, the inspiration and, and the goal that you're trying to achieve. But I know that what a lot of the tools you use, you kind of just were talking about subconscious there. A lot of the tools you use in, in your programs um, are neuroscience uh, stuff, you, you know, uh, neurolinguistics and that kind of stuff. Uh, that's the same kind of stuff that can be used for really bad purposes. And I think we're seeing a lot more cultish type activity and well i had somebody on who was uh, a former moony she grew up in the in the uh the literally in the sun young moon cult her mother was wow. uh, married at uh, madison square garden as part of that when she was 11 years old but she told me even though she got out of the cult in the early 80s the cult is still in her at some in some level in her subconscious it it is always there making her question am i doing am i is this against the messiah meaning more mm -hmm. uh so that once it's programmed in it, that stuff can be hard to break and so i'm just wondering what what your perspective on it, <laughs> the use of you know neurolinguistics to kind of induce people into this cultish mentality and how do you break that cycle can it can it be ever broken because according to her you know, it's just going on 40 years now. She's still got it in her subconscious. Whenever whenever something comes up, it's a, a question, am, am I being unfaithful to yeah. the Messiah? Yeah. So um, I'll offer a couple of perspectives on this. But first, I just want to share that what we do at Unilab is not neuro-linguistic programming. It uses neuroscience to empower people to learn things uh, in a kind of social way. But gotcha. there's no... Like stare at this flickering screen and repeat after me. I'm a good person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you're still you're still uh, using the same part of the brain, you know, trying to kind of um, identify those things that that are powerful in creating those alliances to tribe, cult, religion, uh, political party, whatever it is you're creating those alliances to. I think you're trying to break those necessary alliances, but it's the same technology that can be used to either create or break it, right? Uh, yes and no. So, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, people are people and we are tribal. We're a social animal and we've developed certain ways of communicating and identifying that have been evolutionary advantageous over time. 
And there's there are things you can do to build community, build tribe, and there are things you can do to break it down. Absolutely right. Um, now, with regard to your friend, and I can speak, you know, have some personal experience here too, um, not necessarily with the Moonies or the cult or anything like that, but um, our identities form at a, at a certain age and they continue to form and refine. And when we have a break with the previous you know, group or identity, it's one thing to say, okay, that's not me anymore. It's another thing to actually show up that way. So for example, like I grew up in the Midwest, um, pretty much a poster child of toxic masculinity. I told racist jokes. I drank a lot. I dated a lot. I made a lot of money. I, I was just a, a big, you know, a I regular I'd guy. <laughs> well, but I was not a regular guy because I use the N word. I, I was, you know, I disparaged people for all kinds of reasons that had nothing to do with their character or their, or their uh, merit or anything like that. Um, now, when I got that in my late twenties, I was like, wow, I, uh, I've pretty much leaned my ladder against the wrong wall. Like I've, I don't know who I am. I don't know my purpose. Right. I don't know the nature of reality. All I know how to do is Microsoft Excel, PowerPoint, and how to party. Pretty sure that that's not all there is out there. So I had this conscious shift. Okay, I want to figure out who I am in the face of this unjust, unsustainable world. Now, by saying that or by realizing that, did that actually rip out all this frat boy pro programming out of me? No, it did not. That has taken years, and it's my wife still catches it. She's like, "Okay, sexist," <laughs> like she finds it all the time. So your your friend, me, like behavior change. You're you're never fully rid of uh, the initial impulse to kind of go back to the old, you know, processing identity kind of group affiliation. Um, but what you, what we can do is we can create a pause in between stimulus and response. To say, okay, well, who do I who do I choose to be in the face of the stimulus? Right? Am I am I going to go immediately to some kind of uh, cultural or moral uh, position, or am I am I going to sit and, and ask really what does the situation de demand of me in the moment? Now, what 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 we do is basically what you had had shared earlier, training people to learn how to communicate. So use I statements. So instead of saying, Matt. You're a jerk. So like, Matt, I'm feeling angry about what you just said about me. You know, so it's, it's taking responsibility. Same thing with like learning how to make an apology, how to actually listen to somebody, how to express gratitude, like basic communication that I know I wasn't taught ever. I mean, I was taught how to be a good Catholic, but I never le really learned what that meant in, in conversation. Uh, but but teaching people basic communication, so that's like the the first piece of it. And the second piece is having them do that in a diverse group. So one of the the beautiful pieces uh, of what we call it human nature is this thing called contact hypothesis. Have you heard of this? Term? No, I don't know what that is. So it's I mean it's it's a fancy fancy word for something really stupid and. <laughs> and easy. If you take two people who are different, you swish them together, you tell them to go, you know, build a bike together. They immediately start to like and trust and understand one another. And 
if you know one's black, one's white, or one's Republican, one's Democrat, one's a boomer, one's a millennial, those barriers, those those biases start to collapse and say, oh, you know, I actually like working with so and so. You know, I like next time I, I I'm tasked with making a judgment based on somebody's race or their uh, age or their political party, I'm going to think twice because like. You know, I know someone who's a Republican. They're they're not all bad. I know someone who's a Democrat. They're they're actually not all whack jobs. So when we do that, when we take people who are different and put them together to go do something, we, we get the results. And I, I think you may have seen the Unity Lab website that shows some of these results. Um, there's a beautiful video on the About page, if you can find it. It's a Heineken ad from the UK in the, uh, I think, three or four years ago. I think they, I know uh, it. Yeah, you know this one. I think I do. Yeah, I, World Apart ad. Yeah, it's yeah. And it, it basically, in a very short four minutes, you get the power of what it's like. Say two people who believe totally different things, put them together, have them build something, and then have a beer together, and then they can talk about what really matters. Right. So they first have to be together and build that relatedness, that trust, and then they can talk about their differences. Hmm. Well, that makes a, a, a lot of sense to me because I know, again, you know, most of the majority of my friends and people I've been surrounded with for the last 40 years disagree with me on politics. I know uh, all of them, all of those people who disagree with me on politics, I know they're all good people at heart. I know uh, when I when I stand in judgment of them, the deeds that they've done, I say, that's a good guy. That's, he's got a good heart. I've seen him, you know, do things for other people and be selfless and, and do a lot of great things for other people. I know he's not a mean person. But then when it comes down to uh, following somebody who is a mean person and try, trying to say, hey, what, this is not you. You know, you would never act like that. That's where we, we get into problems. And my technique has been to say, not to say you're wrong, but to ask, why do you believe that? And if I ask, why do you believe that? It still creates the same reaction sometimes, often, as if I said, no, you're wrong. It's right. because, and, and it's so that the way you communicate some, something or uh, knowing or, or assuming somebody else might have an agenda, the person asking, why do you believe that might have an agenda can affect the response you're going to get that to, too. So I think sometimes we build up these preconceived notions of well, Matt's against Trump. Uh, so if he's asking me, why do I believe this? He must have a ulterior motive to try to prove that Trump's a bad guy. And so I'm going to automatically, you know, put this in the defensive when I'm really generally curious is like, why do you believe what you, and I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Somebody came on this program in the chat room one night, we were having a political discussion guest was on and he, the guy in the chat room who I know very well said, globalism is pure evil. And I asked, why do you believe that? Well, well, you know what, if we, you don't want any borders, I said, you know, the idea of borders in itself is, is a divisive kind of thing. Uh, I'm just wondering why you believe it's pure evil, though. I, I, I'm not saying I'm necessarily uh, uh, against glo uh, for globalism or against it. I just think that uh, my, my where I come from is the more we try to divide ourselves and try to kind of keep ourselves apart, the more we're ensuring that future generations will always have this state of us against them. And right. so is there another solution? But I want to know why you consider it evil. And basically that got 
just like really angry that I didn't see why this was evil. Right. And, uh, it, that's a tough thing. You got any advice on how to kind of uh, soften that question or let them know that I have genuine concern? I really want to hear your answer. I'm not looking to start a yeah. fight. <laughs> yeah. um, so you, you brought up a great point about if, if that person knows that you're advocating or, or trying, you know, so uh, I think it's, it's important to set the context and and to be, basically be as vulnerable as you possibly can, and this and to take it out of the public sphere because then that person's ego and public perception mechanisms are running. They want to look smart. They want to look be right. They they don't want anybody to see that they lost to a you know a snowflake or whatever. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. You know so. So they say like, hey, you know, make some good points. I, I want to understand this more. Do you have time for a quick call? Um, because I'm, I'm trying, like, I'm trying to educate myself, or I'm trying to understand where, where the where the differences in this issue actually are. And this is not about right or wrong. I just, I'm just curious. And so, if you're vulnerable, say like, you know, I actually don't know. Like, I want to learn more about how you think about it, and and where, even if you already do have like a pretty well-formed opinion based in science, reality, best practices, the experts, it doesn't matter. Like they need to first feel seen, heard, and like that they're, what they're sharing with you matters in order for them to ever in the future be open to something that you share. So uh, Jonathan Haidt, again, from this book, Righteous Mind, he talks a lot about human beings are like a writer sitting on top of an elephant. Now, the elephant is this giant thing that no human being can actually really control. It just kind of it, it moves where it wants to go. And you can kind of nudge it, but not really. And that writer is essentially our intuitive, moral, emotional reasoning. So and it's and it works without the head. Like it just immediately you see something, you're the disgusted and you, and you move away from it or you, or you like it and move towards it because it conforms, gives you a feel good thing. It conforms the understanding of morality. It, it, it uh, is some kind of intuitive response towards or away from something. And then the brain tries to tries to rationalize why it drifted one way or the other. So by, by, by simply acknowledging this man's dignity or this person's dignity and saying, I really want to understand, help me understand, I don't know, they're going to be like, oh, okay, cool. But... If it's in a public sphere, they're going to be like shields up, arrows out. Like, right. <laughs> well, part of what what really gets confusing to me, like so far, we've kind of been talking basically about the political divisions within within the United States, but on the religious front, it gets really, really confusing because almost all religions, unless you're talking about like Satanism or something uh, like that, really were that you know kind of worships evil or, or whatever it is. Most of them are about uh, love and kindness and all these kinds of things, And but they can be so divided that um, we see the worst behavior in people defending religions or and attacking other re- religions. And I'm wondering uh, how that, you know, from the outsider perspective, who somebody who doesn't get emotionally attached to any kind of uh, religion or anything, when I see people, and, and my wife is uh, involved in a lot of these uh, religious discussion groups, when I see people who are so um, 
emotionally attached to their religion that they uh, are attacking other religions in in this way. I I always say to myself, how can they not see the hypocrisy of that? You're supposed to love every, you know, according to your own beliefs and faith, you're supposed to love everybody and forgive everybody and see uh, value in everybody. And then here you are in a a war with somebody over who's who's got what name you should call God or whatever. How do they not see that hypocrisy? And that goes back to my uh, statement before the. I grew up with this idea there was a right or wrong and religion, you know, that kind of lays it out for you in exactly what is right and wrong and making somebody else your enemy just because they believe something different than you is on the wrong side of the ledger, according to your own beliefs. But here you are doing it. Got any uh, help for me on the clarity of the, that. I mean, it's kind of the same thing with the, the person who disagree with you. Get it out, take it out of the public sphere. Help, you know, ask, ask them to educate you. Like you want to understand about, you know, why they believe what they believe or how you apply the principles of this religion to this issue. Um, listen intently, thank them, you know, appreciate their wisdom, their values, their care. Um, do not bring up hypocrisy. Right. <laughs> and here's why. Because hypocrisy is basically it's an arrow, right? It it um, we're all hypocrites, you know. We all try to adhere to some kind of code, moral, religion, whatever. And most Americans attribute everything that is um, that has conflict as right or wrong, because we were raised in these um, you know Abrahamic faiths for the most part. Um, so Judaism, Islam, Christianity, it's like you're with God's will, or you're against God's will. And so antagonism basically, and everyone believes they're a good person, right? Right. If you asked Charles Manson, if he was a good person, like, yeah, doing God's will. Like, yeah. You know? So um, you, you want to, you know, take those kind of words out and just move towards like question understanding. And then as it's relevant, we, we've been things like, you know, I, I hear that. And I also am really inspired by this principle that Christ preached or that uh, if I read in the Torah or the Quran. So I think it also helps to have uh, an understanding of, you know, a baseline understanding of, of some of the major religious, you know, principles, prophets, um, folks so that you can bring forth uh a, a conversation that, that that respects what they believe in so much without getting into an antagonism just saying like yes and yeah i hear that and this so now we have these two things like how do you choose which is right you know this is a fun question what do you think hmm. but so are uh, you saying not i understand what literally you said don't bring up hypocrisy but showing somebody how um uh, what they're espousing does not necessarily match uh match what they claim they believe in which is highlighting that hypocrisy without calling it hypocrisy right. are you saying that that's a bad tactic to try to help um you know bridge the fence, uh, you know, cross that fence that's dividing us and, and kind of break that down. And if, uh, so if, is it wrong for me to actually show you that your, your actions are not matching what you, what your dictation of your belief in core principles? So it's, it's not wrong. You just have to say it differently. 
Right. So the best way to say it is like, <laughs> best way to say is like, for example, when I, you know, lied to my wife or when I cheated on my taxes, you know, you want to make yourself look bad first. Cause then they're like, Oh, right. He's about, to, he's about to say something that he didn't have to say. And he just said that thing. So you say like, you know, and then I, I think about this principle of, you know, turn the other cheek and, you know, it was really hard for me. So, you, you know, you take it out of the realm of the idea and theoretical, you take it into, you know, Matt's life. It's really hard for me to turn the other cheek on this one because I just wanted to punch that guy out or I give him a piece of my mind. And, and so, you know, you, you have to essentially make it personal because people relate not so much to ideas or law, they relate to story and people. So if you tell a story that exhibits the principle that you want to be alive in that conversation, you're going to have more success. It doesn't mean that person automatically in that conversation is going to change their mind. I think this is, this is another thing that's really important that I think that I just learned myself maybe four or five months ago is that you don't have to win a conversation to be to have it be a win. Sometimes just having a conversation about something that is hard is a win. Because then that, then you know that you can have that conversation. That person knows that, that you're somebody who's safe to have a conversation about difference in. And it might be three, four, five, six conversations later that, that their, their worldview starts to expand and include what they used to believe and then maybe add some new things to it. But it takes time and don't expect like, any kind of miracle step in one, one conversation. Right. Well, I, my, and forgive me if I, I'm uh, assuming too much here, but I'm going to assume that you are an extreme optimist, <laughs> but I want to know if there's a sense of realism that, that tempers that, that optimism and makes you see that the job you're uh, taking on the goal that you're setting for yourself of creating unity is a huge, very difficult task. And, uh, you know, uh, is there that that realism that tempers any of the optimism in your uh, makeup? So, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's not, um, I would say it's pessimism or optimism. Um, it's, I mean, for me, it comes down to purpose. It's like how how can I just like forget that the country is falling apart? Our democratic institutions are crumbling. You know, 80% of Americans are paycheck to paycheck. How can I just like block that out and, and just worry about myself and my wife and my family. And like, that'd be like, it's like the proverbial deck chairs on the Titanic. Like, so I, I'm not in it because I'm like, yay, everybody just hold hands and blow kisses. (laughs) And, you know, we're all going to fart rainbows. It's going to be great. Just follow me. Like, that's not going to happen. Right. Um, Now, I would say that I know that we have done it before and that we can do it again. Now, um, obviously, different circumstances. I mean, we came together during, during the Depression as a country like we've never done before. As same thing with the New Deal and then with World War II. We've done it before. Um, now, unfortunately, what preceded us coming together was famine, poverty, you know, threat of war, like big things. And maybe this is what what we have right now. We've got this, you know, perfect storm of climate change, 
everyone's broke and democratic institutions fumbling. And it all it takes is some group of people of which I count yourself and me and everybody else who deep in their heart has got a piece of America in there and says, yeah, I'm like, it's part of me to make sure this place works out for future generations. We say, okay, we're going to do it differently. It doesn't mean that like, there's like, it's choosing between Coke and Pepsi. It just means I'm now committed to this and I'm going to do what I can within my sphere to depolarize myself, the conversations I'm in, create more empathy and trust and belonging and basically adopt community as a verb. Like everywhere you go, you create community. It's, you know, it begins with, Hey, how you doing? How's your mother? You know, like basic stuff. And then, well, tell me about that. Why do you, why do you feel about that? Oh, that's cool. Like, what could you do with that? Like getting in people's worlds so that we start to reweave this social fabric that has been fraying for the better part of three decades. So it has happened in the past. Like I said, we're at, the, at a trough of like a hundred or 120 year cycle where people had a very low a social cohesion. And then uh, it started to peak. It, it actually peaked in like 1965. And then it started to come back down in the eighties with like the me generation. Um, and then uh, obviously everyone now is a me, but um, it's now starting to pick back up again. And so it has happened in the past and it, i I'm pretty sure we can do it again. Right. And, uh, you know, I think a lot, a big part of that is people controlling uh, their information diet, uh, you know. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious because earlier you said um, everybody thinks they're a good person. And I'm wondering, you know, do psychopaths necessarily think that? Like Hitler, do you think he th- th- thought he was a good person? And the, the follow-up, where I'm really going with this, is do you believe that there really is uh, – such a thing as good and evil, right and wrong? Mm. (laughs) Awesome question. Um, (laughs) So knowing what I know about Hitler, which is zero first person experience only through the, you know, the eyes and words of others. um, I know that he was kind to animals. I know that he was a vegetarian. I know that he obviously believed very deeply in the Aryan race. Um, and probably had something in his heart for, uh, you know, white Germans, white Christian Germans, and potentially other white people. Um, and, you know, he sought uh, their power, their influence over the lives of most specifically the Jews and the Poles and the homosexuals of, of Europe. So, yeah, I mean, there's evil in his heart as there's evil in my heart. Wow. You know, as they say, the line of good and evil runs through every human heart. And I can have a lot of part, a big part of my heart focused on doing good. But there's part of me that, like, doesn't want to do good, that wants to punish, that wants to hurt, that wants to take and hoard. Like, all those, you know, the seven deadly sins are not those things out there. They're here at home. And so... You know, do I recognize good or evil? Yes, because I have them both. Um, do I recognize that one person is 100% good and one person is 100% evil? No. Mm. <laughs> I mean, say what you want about Donald Trump, but, you know, this guy, he did stand up to China. Uh, he did do a big criminal justice reform bill. Um, 
you know, he did invigorate rural America in a way that no other, that nobody else has invigorated rural America since Reagan. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that didn't go the way I think it should have gone, but he's not entirely without some, you know, positive legacy. Um, and the same thing with some of other presidents who everyone thinks, oh, they're great. You know, Lincoln was a saint and MLK was amazing and RFK and JFK, and blah, 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 blah. Like, yeah, no, we're all complicated yeah. people. Yeah, we're all complicated. We're all very complicated people. And I've never been, see, this is where I, I, I think a lot of it gets lost when it comes to politics. I've never been on the side of any person in politics, any president or, or any other, anybody holding any office. I never rooted for them. I always looked at what they do and how they, and what they've achieved and, and what their beliefs are. But, uh, you know, Trump is a whole different character in my, he just like, and I, I hear what you're saying, but I think on some level, he probably does believe that he is doing the right thing. But, you know, when, when you, you know the compulsive lying and the compulsive bragging, the sadism uh, that I see, and the the bullying and, and it, all that kind of stuff. It's hard for me to believe that in somewhere in his mind he thinks he's a good person. <laughs> really, I mean, I I can see he thinks he's doing the right thing for America and believes deeply in uh, whatever causes he's in. But I think at some point. I mean, it's hard for me to even imagine him thinking, well, I'm really a good guy at heart because I know he's the kind of guy who took joy in putting a 90-year-old wit widow out of her house so he could build a parking lot and celebrated it through a party for getting a 90-year-old widow evicted from her home in New Jersey so he could build a parking right. lot. So, <laughs> so well, I want to I offer an alternative view here. And so when the Titanic went down, you know, everyone's flocking to the boats, right? Right. And at some point, a crew member has to say enough. This whole thing will sink if I let you on. So at some point, the person who's who's caring for the people on that life raft have, has to put boots on fingers and say, "No, you can't. You it, it's you're gonna die, and these people are gonna be." safe. If I let you on, everybody dies. So within everybody's uh, a bit like moral reasoning exists hurting others for the, for the greater good. Everybody's got that in some way, shape or form. Now the extent to which people go with that and to which moral code they adhere to um, is different. Uh, men of faith, women of faith who lead and, and consult their spiritual elders in how to lead tend to make pretty good decisions, even though they know that some people are going to get hurt. And then there are folks who do not, and they're still saying, okay, well, those people still need to get hurt in order for the good people to win tend to make decisions that hurt a lot of people. And I'm not going to name names. It's not my job, but I, something tells me that uh, what, what you're reacting to uh, with regard to Trump um, is actually a pretty normal thing. It just, in big lights, just like everything else in Trump's life is in big lights. Yeah, yeah, I know. And believe me, I, I, it's, I've most of the people who who know me, 
uh, every four years or every eight years, depending on you know who's president, they think I'm a part of the other party because I'm very critical of who's ever, uh, it, whoever has the office because I think they should be held to a high standard. But I yeah. do almost until Trump, I never ever uh, criticize anybody on personal. Uh, uh, well, I, that's not true. With Bill Clinton, I did say I thought um, he, he he just thought too much with his dick. And uh, that was a really selfish act for a president to kind of, uh, you know, put himself in that position, put the country in that position to have uh, be stupid enough to have sex with an intern. So that was the one time I did get on personal stuff. But most of the time when I'm criticizing presidents, uh, governors, you know, senators, whatever, it's not personal. It, it is on um, the you know from what are they doing policy wise does and the greater good you know I'm con- cognizant of that idea of the greater good, uh so just sometimes when I see it you know the, the joy in in settling for the, the you know the people that must die on their lifeboat or not getting gun on lifeboats and, and right. think Look, yes they're gonna die. That kind of stuff, uh, I have to look. Whoa, that yeah. smells that and feels like pure evil to me. I can't, I can't look at it as any other way, and, and that's well, a difficult thing for me to get past. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, remember, Trump's a showman, and his base gets excited when he needles the libs, right? So, right, you you could argue that he's just a political genius. Now. Or showman genius for for yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to discount it or or give him a pass. I just I just want to like try to create an inclusive way to hold this phenomenon of Trumpism so that you and I and everybody watching can relate to people who they don't agree with. Right. That, because as soon as we start to make Trump wrong or make the people believe in him wrong, we've lost the opportunity to connect to to empathize to create true solidarity around things that are have nothing to do with politics like should we mow our lawns on tuesdays or wednesdays like basic stuff uh so so but realistically now we are heading into a week where uh it's going to get a little ugly Uh, there are going to be you know Two days from now, they're going to have the vote on uh, whether to certify the election or not. They're going to some members of uh, the Republican Party are going to object to certifying the electors. And they've already planned for some people to get violent in in the city. Now, I'm seeing on Twitter uh, people who are on the left, the Democrats are saying, stay out of D.C., just let the. Uh, Proud Boys or whoever go there and do whatever they're going to do and don't push back on it. Is that is that necessary? I, I, I kind of I think that's a smart move here. But is that necessarily a uh, a good tactic in your view is to show no resistance at all? Don't even show up to the party. I mean, that is way beyond my pay grade. I mean, because basically what we're talking about is military tactics against I mean, if they're armed and they said they're going to commit violence, they start against like domestic terrorists. Right. I don't know nothing about that. Um, I would prefer if they actually engaged the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and said, hey, you know, come on in. Like, let's talk. Um, 
but you know, it's, yeah, I, I certainly don't want to see a bunch of, I don't want to see anybody get hurt. Right. Given the violence that we have seen, uh, you know, in Wisconsin and um, Portland. Yeah. I, I, Again, like it's way beyond my pay grade, but I would tell everyone, stay home, stay right. home. Watch this. We've got this these giant military vehicles, SWAT teams, AK forty sevens. We got this. Like just right. stay home, watch television, you'll be fine. <laughs> I, I almost feel like it, it. You know, it's it takes two to really have a war, and just like if, for instance, and this is a bizarre uh, analogy, but say if Russia said, "Okay, uh, we're declaring war on you. Come on over." No, we're just gonna no. stay. We'll just stay here, okay? I'll call him. I'm not in. I'm choosing not to come to your war. Um, I don't know. It, it would. I don't know if that's a, a sign of weakness or not. But I definitely think less people would get hurt, and so that's why I, I think it's a good idea for people who are necessarily not. And again, I don't, I'm with you. I, it's above my pay grade, but I don't want to see anybody get hurt. I don't want to see people go there because uh, well, it's like Charlottesville. I mean, you saw people go there to, to protest uh, an angry mob. The angry mob wins every time. <laughs> you know, peaceful, peaceful protesters don't have any chance to of avoiding uh, violence when they go to confront violence. It's going to happen, right? So. Yeah, yeah. But that yeah. if that's part of your mission here is to unite people, and that's that's the the big concern for me right now is is in the short term anyway is we're heading for a what I think is again I'm a pessimist but admitted pessimist but I think we're headed for some violence uh, in the month of January that is going to kind of uh, be reminiscent of 1968 where we had riots in the streets and all that kind of stuff. So man, I want to challenge you. Go ahead. Uh, I, I, I think your, your your pessimism is always good. Skepticism always good. Will, <laughs> will you also say a prayer for everybody? Oh yeah, uh, believe me, I prayers that like nobody gets hurt and and you know cooler heads prevail and that we have a peaceful transfer. <laughs> Please. Yeah, I am all for that. You know, I'm I'm trying to send out some good vibes and and hoping some people. Uh, again, my advice to anybody who's listening to me, if my advice means anything, if you're uh, against uh, any kind of violent uh, behavior, interceding in any of the political stuff, just stay away. Just don't go to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Yeah. Uh, stay home. Not necessarily stay home. You go to work. Live your life as you always do. Try to be nice to your neighbors and try to be nice to your coworkers, and even if you disagree with them on stuff. But yeah, I would avoid it. I'm all, you know, when I was a young man, I could not say no to a fight. Uh, as I get older, I, I see how stupid that was. And walking away, even if people think I'm weak for walking away, it still ends up being a better solution for my wife and family. Therefore, if they want me still around that I walk away. So, you know, the smart thing is, is what it is. So, yeah, I hope I, I, I live up to that challenge. I will pray for everybody and pray for peace. I'm just, you know, what practical steps that we can actually take in, 
in fostering the kind of things that you're trying to promote uh, that really, really work and, and can get us. Be, and obviously, we're not going to get to that in an hour. Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, so where do people begin? Uh, I mean, if they're interested in following up with you and learning about this or at least trying to make a, a difference, a positive difference in the world, where do, where do you suggest they begin? I've had your website up there on, on the whole time. and Yeah, you can, you can definitely uh, check out Unity Lab. Send us a note. Um, you know, we work at the community neighborhood organizational level because um, that, that's really where people have buy-in with their communities where it makes sense. Like, yeah, I live across the street from a Trump guy. We got to get along, you know, or I, I work in a politically animated company. Like we've got to figure out how to get along. So you can send me a note at Unity Lab. Uh, lots of other great organizations out there. I'm not the only one. Um, I should say Unity Lab is not the only one. I would also check out BraverAngels.org. Uh, they do really good work. I've been to a number of their trainings, and it's all about that red-blue conversation. Uh, very good work. Uh, check them out, too. All right. And I also have a link in the description to your Amazon book page. Uh, now, I, I got to ask you about this because looking through your book page, I, I saw um, you co-authored a book with Susan Lucci. Is that Susan Lucci, the, or the actress? No. Because <laughs> oh, that's it spells the na name the same way, and I was just like, way, yeah. <laughs> "Okay, well, that would make a lot more sense." Because I was like, "How did she get involved in in this kind of work?" It just doesn't. Who knows? She may be. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't. It's like you know, Pee Wee Herman, like to see right. something like that on co-authored with Pee Pee Wee Herman. What? What? When I saw Susan Lucci on there, I was like, "Wait, wait a minute!" So, uh, you want to talk briefly about the books that that are available? And because one of them, I that one in particularly, uh, is something we talk about on this program. And I know we're over time, but um, the idea of finding your purpose—I I always, uh, you know, this is a difficult thing. And I think if I if I'm correct, and I always am, uh, <laughs> that most most of the unhappiness in in people, I don't care if it's America or anywhere in the world, people who are unhappy, it's because they're living a life of uh, not connected to their purpose. And so I um, always talk about how, how do people um, connect with their purpose, find their purpose, discover their purpose, or, uh, you know, connect, I guess is the best word with it. So if yeah. can, you, can you offer any uh, short advice on this, you know, our understanding our time limitations here. Yeah, I'll be very quick. So um, what you say is true. Uh, basically, when you connect with your purpose, you're healthier, you're happier, you make more money, have bigger impact, you're a more integrated member of society. So and you can check out all the research that's uh, that I cite in my books, but uh, it's all publicly available at scienceofpurpose.org. You can check it out. So that's if you're skeptical about purpose. Now, if you want to know how to do it, uh, I've written two books that lay out the, the journey. So the first is Planet on Purpose, like Planet Earth on Purpose. And that's basically what purpose is, what the purpose discovery journey looks like. And then the second one is the Purpose Field Guide. And that is the actual exercises to find your purpose. I highly recommend not doing the the field guide by yourself. Enroll a friend who also wants to do it because you need that accountability to actually finish it. So check out those. 
Okay. Uh, I want to just, and I don't want to turn this into a bashing thing. And I know we're, we're just about <laughs> up here. I don't want to bash anybody else's ideas on this stuff, but uh, I think people tend to oversimplify it. And I just want to get your take on that on finding purpose. A lot of people will say, well, just do what things like, just do what you love and the money will come and and it's uh, and think, well, just what you really like to do is your purpose. Uh, do you have any idea? Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, <laughs> remarks on that kind of simplicity approach to uh, finding your purpose. Yeah, uh, that doesn't work uh, because we like a lot of things. I mean, right. I like whales and I like space and I like scotch and I like watching my wife sleep and I will, you know, like. Right. I love sex, but I can't yeah, make it. Mean, Nobody's like, going to pay me for that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not to do it. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, yeah, so, but it, it's important to pay attention to what that, that brings you alive. Like, for example, like there are activities I do that are a big part of my purpose. Like, you know, talk with you, Matt. It's a big one. Like, I love conversations. I love doing keynotes, facilitating, coaching, all that kind of stuff. But to what end? Like for me, that has to break my heart. So that's the piece I think that is on the backside of that follow your bliss stuff is like follow your bliss into what breaks your heart. Like do what you love, but but make sure it matters. Like make sure it's a pain that you yourself have experienced and you're out to fix in the world. So, so um, you know, and there's, there's, there's a whole body of work around it, but you know, I would add, if I would add one more thing to that follow your bliss, it's like, let it break your heart. Wow. Good stuff. Good stuff. Hopefully we've uh, at least planted a seed here tonight. <laughs> you know, that that's all you can really do, right? Is plant yeah. seeds in, in an hour and a few minutes. It really, uh, we're not going to necessarily change it. And I, I, I've heard so many often, so often people say, well, that talk changed my life. I, really? You know, in an hour, you, you, you change your life. No change takes, uh, commitment, practice, re- repetition, you know, it, but planting seeds is what it's, what it's all about. If we planted a seed, I think we've done something positive to get. Yeah. I think we did. Matt. Thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for coming. And, you know, anytime you want, the door's always open. If you want to come back and continue this, uh, love, love to have you back. I think we're just kind of scratching the surface and hopefully uh, nothing bad will happen this month and everything will be peaceful and nice. Please (laughs) stay home, stay safe. Thank you for coming, Brandon. And I appreciate your time here. This episode is brought to you by Put Me in the Story. Put Me in the Story creates personalized books for kids by taking best-selling children's picture books and well-loved characters and allowing you to create personalized books that make your child the star of the story alongside their favorite characters. Save 25% store-wide when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code SAVE25. We're also sponsored by Lovely. Lovely is your online stop for modern, irresistible, and affordable women's clothing. Never before has dressing yourself been so easy. Lovely's carefully curated selection of apparel, accessories, and outerwear are always on trend and always available at the web's best prices. Lovely is dedicated to delivering high-quality clothing to women that will make them look and feel their best. They believe every woman has the right to dress well and shouldn't have to spend a lot to love how she looks. They make it easy to wear outfits you love every day, giving you the confidence to take on the world. Lovely.com summer fashion trends are now 40% off, starting at just $5.99. 
Get an extra 18% off when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code JFT18. We're also sponsored by VaporDNA. Founded in 2013, VaporDNA is the premier online vape store offering an industry-leading selection of electronic cigarettes, e-liquids, and accessories. Their friendly and knowledgeable customer service team is always ready to provide the best customer service experience to ensure you find what you're looking for. They guarantee their products to be 100% genuine and at the lowest possible price. They're so confident in their selection and customer service, they offer their customers a 45-day refund policy. Save 20% when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code ORIONQ. Brandon Peel, folks. Uh, UnityLab.co, not .com, UnityLab.co. The link is in the description. I hope you check it out. And uh, there are links to his books on the, the idea of uh, uh, finding purpose and, and, you know, identifying your purpose and connecting with it, which is, um, again, I think the key to living a more happy and productive life. I hope you enjoyed this program. I hope you tell your friends about it. Come on back and subscribe. Go to my YouTube channel and subscribe there. Go to MindDogTV.com and get on my mailing list so you know when we're going to have great guests on, great topics, and questions and comments always for me at info at MindDogTV.com. We have a program at 1 p.m. tomorrow, uh, and let's look looking at, oh, some new music from James Ethington the third, uh, a young man who uh, taught himself to play guitar by <laughs> surrounding himself with more guitars than anybody could ever need. At a very young age, he just began buying guitars without knowing how to play them. And at some point, it became an impetus for him to learn how to play them. He was just a hobbyist collector of guitars without knowing how to play them. And now he's got a new album out, and he'll be here to talk to us about that at 1 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. Till then, I'm Matt Napple for the Mind Dog TV Podcast. Thanks for coming, and have a great night. Bye for now. You know you live the life you've chosen With no regrets, no one else to blame
Cause there's one song left to play 